there, welcome to Blockhead, the podcast where cartoonists talk comics and just about everything else. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to Blockhead 2023. This is the new, the new upgraded edition of the podcast, uh, and we're here today with the president of the National Cartoonist Society, Jason Chatfield, who is also a great cartoonist in his own right, doing stuff for the New Yorker, uh, among many other magazines, as well as uh, the long-running Australian comic strip Ginger Megs, which you can still read on. GoComics.com, and uh, Jason was—I guess Jason was the youngest cartoonist, youngest nationally syndicated cartoonist uh, ever in Australia um, when he took over Ginger Megs, and uh, that's just an indication of what kind of talent he has. And uh, he, not only that, Jason is also a stand-up comedian. So uh, you know, it's kind of interesting because the usual—you know—the usual, you know, the usual uh, cartoonist personality is one that is more given to solitude than to uh, the uh, kind of gregariousness that is necessary to stand up on a stage, particularly with comedy. My God, that's hard to do. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Can you imagine that, standing up on a stage and telling jokes? It's not something that I, I could see myself doing. It's, uh, it's a frightening proposition. <laughs> it's easier to be here in my little recording booth than just... Uh, spout off whatever because there's no audience and I have no idea what your response is so if I uh, I say something stupid or embarrassing you know or something unfunny that I think is funny I never know the result of it uh, so but boy standing right there in front of an audience that's that's trial by fire for sure so uh, Jason's here to help us start off the new year this this is a, a recording that we did some time ago it was actually delayed it was originally supposed to happen in November and then it didn't happen until December and then I'm a university professor I you know the end of the semester was happening and there's all kinds of craziness around that so but better late than never, and here we are to greet the new year with a brand new interview and with uh, none other than the president of the National Cartoonist Society, which is just terrific. So we talked to Jason about his career as a cartoonist and a stand-up comedian and uh, his work at the National Cartoonist Society and a bunch of other stuff. So get ready, get set. 2023 is here, and so is Blockhead. So uh, welcome aboard. If this is your first time listening, I hope you enjoy the interview. And uh, those of you who were back with me uh, in this this new year, welcome again. Glad to have you here. And, uh, well, enough of me. Let's get going with Jason Chatfield, okay? So this opens with Jason and I just trying to work out a recording level. And uh, so you get some backstage patter here, which is just a benefit of listening to Blockhead. So <laughs> without further ado and a don't, Jason Chatfield and myself in conversation. Hey, how about the next? Still getting the buzz? No, the buzz is gone. Uh, you still sound a little echoey, but that's okay. That's all right. Um, I think we can live with that. But the uh, yeah, the buzz is gone. The white noise is oh, gone. Okay. 
Sorry about that. It's a, it's a microphone that I've got plugged in, but I, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. It's a new one, so I haven't tried it yet. Oh, okay. So this is the trial run. It is. It is. Yeah. Sorry for you to be the guinea pig for the new, <laughs> for the new microphone. Well, that, well, that's okay. You know, I've I've been through worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry about all the the back and forth as well. Um, this oh. last few weeks has been kind of crazy. Are you feeling better? I am. It really knocked me out, though. I I got the flu shot and the COVID booster, and still got the flu. Um, and it got my wife pretty bad as well. Was it the flu or was it COVID that you had? It was definitely the flu. We did COVID tests every day that we had it. Uh -huh. it came up negative because we've had COVID twice now. Oh, okay. Alpha and Omicron. Oh, okay. Uh, I've had it once, and I'm not sure if I've had it a second time. The second time, I kept te I tested negative once, but I wasn't quite sure that wasn't a false negative. But, right, yeah. But uh, I had the flu shot this year, and it knocked me on my ass. Uh, it, it was like, I don't, know, I don't know why, but like the night that I had it, I started getting really sick, and for the next 24 hours, I was really out of it. It was terrible. Yeah, yeah, I had that with the COVID booster. It knocked me out for a full day. Oh, did it really? Uh-huh. Yeah. It affected my wife that way. It didn't affect me that way. But and yeah, your wife is really insane. So I'm glad you're well. Oh, <laughs> I'm yeah. Glad we're both well. Yeah, right. We're recovered. And your wife is recovered too? Yeah, she's back at work today. She is, yeah. Oh, okay, man. It is, you know, I guess that's just again, word to the wise. You know, people get yeah. vaccinated and, and man, because it's nasty. Uh, and 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 everybody I know now. All of a sudden, it's like everybody's getting COVID. Uh, and, you know, it's, I think it's because the masks are down and everybody's become laissez-faire about it. I know when I'm at work, it, it really, the masks, are they on? Are they off? It's all over the place. It's, there's no real standard anymore. Uh -oh, yeah. yeah. And, I uh, just posted uh, in the chat, I just posted, um, I drew the diary of when I had it the first time oh, in cool. March, March of 2020. Um <laughs> because no one knew anything really about it and everything was very sort of like ad hoc you know all of the symptoms on the cbc website were things like well it's you know no runny nose maybe a cough shortness of breath i'm like yeah that could be anything you know and uh they just didn't have specific symptoms or the onset of those symptoms so i drew up because i got it first and then my wife got it and i drew up my diary of what happened each day mm -hmm. and um sort of shared that very early in the pandemic and uh yeah i was uh, you know saying it's definitely not medical advice but here's what what happened to me and everyone was sort of responding saying oh my god thank god you know you put this out there because now i know how to prepare and and uh some people were like yep that's exactly the the onset of symptoms that i had you know sore hips and all these things that you know the cdc weren't saying keep an eye out for um yeah Man, it's uh, it, it's really you had it right at the, I mean, right in uh, the heyday of it, right at the height of it, and uh, yep. when when yeah, like you were saying, nobody really knew anything. I remember it was all, it wasn't until March. I mean, we'd been hearing about it, but didn't really yeah. know anything about it. And I remember um, a week before I was in, I was teaching at the university, and uh, I remember the week before uh, we were put on furlough if you will uh right, yeah. we i remember wearing gloves for the first time opening doors and being aware 
you know, of the possibility and pulling my scarf up over my face, you know, because all of a sudden, you know, people started to think about it. And then when, then they put us on leave, we were going to spring break and they just said, stay home. And it was like, it was like an episode of the twilight zone. It was so strange. Yeah. Yeah. You know, now it's weird to think back on it and to think that we thought it was so weird because it's become part of everyday life. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just something we, we live with now. And, uh, and like I said, everybody I know is coming down with it because we've become kind of so lax and so used to it. Like we are with the flu, right? You know, sometimes we get the flu shot and sometimes we don't. And, and sometimes we get the COVID booster and sometimes we don't. And, uh, you know, it's because it, a new booster seems to come out every few months or something. It's hard to keep up right. with it. It is really hard to keep up. It's, it's sort of that thing where you want to stay, you know, vigilant, but then it can get very confusing. And I know a lot of my friends here in New York have been like really confused about what to do at work and what to do with masks and all sorts of stuff. So it really, I mean, I know it's divided a lot of people, but it's also just confused a hell of a lot of people. Yeah, it, it is. It's very confusing. So much disinformation out there also. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, if people don't realize it by now, we're talking to Jason Chatfield. <laughs> oh, are we on? Are we on? I don't know. Did we, we start yet? <laughs> yeah, we... you know we did actually uh i I, if you want me to cut that stuff out i will no no i didn't i didn't know if we'd started yet i always just ramble on you know know, actually what i found is it was funny um first time i interviewed i don't know you know who michael allred is michael allred yeah he did a great comic book indie comic book madman and madman and he's done a zillion other things for marvel in in silver surfer and stuff like that it rings a bell yeah yeah well he's he's in comic books he's real big he's he's real big anyway and he's of my generation so maybe he's not so big anymore (laughs) (laughs) you know kids today are into different people but anyway uh mike allred was on the show and he's done a zillion interviews and the first time he came on the show he like you know, he spoke to me like I was from Entertainment Tonight, the first opening. He's like, he was ready to go. He was prepped and he, he introduced himself that way. And it was just like I hadn't even pressed the record button and I felt like so off base. I was like, oh, man, I'm so embarrassed. I didn't have the record button pressed. I'd better start. You know, I had to stop him and say, OK, we're going to record now. So now before I start every show, I I start the record button at the beginning because I don't want to walk into a situation like that again. And, and, and then also there's often good stuff that's said at the beginning of the show that we never get into later. So, sure. well, now um, we've got but, it, we've got it to cut if we need. <laughs> we've um, got it to cut. Yeah. I think did Mike do I zombie? I think I know I zombie is a, is a, was it a DC title? I know that there was one thing he did that I read. Um, I'm not sure that one skipped, you know, there's periods in his career, his career is really, it's like 40. Yeah, right. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff he's done that I, I, I'm a big fan of his, but I haven't kept up with everything. Um, right. he did, he did, uh, X-Force, which is kind of a, right. yeah, a yeah, parody yeah. of X-Men. It's not really a, par- it's like a takeoff parody kind of thing of, of superhero groups in general. Uh, and which was great for a lot of years. And, um, and he's done, you know, Madman is his his big thing. Um, right. That's what he's best known. So if you Google him. But anyway, uh, you know, he was a great guest. And it was a lot of fun. And I really enjoyed having him on. But I felt so stupid and awkward because of that intro. <laughs> so I never want to be caught with my pants down again. 
Well, you've learned a lesson. <laughs> I learned a lesson, yeah. So, especially with you, because you're an entertainment guy, right? You're 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 a uh, stand-up comedian and a TV host. Right. Yeah. I mean, I it's it, the, the pandemic really, um, you know, knocked that uh, on the head for a minute. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll be, uh, I was doing comedy over Zoom and uh, out in parks, like outdoors and. It was it was pretty pretty touch and go there for a while and and I did shoot a TV show during the pandemic at end of 2020, mm-hmm. um, which was you know a huge challenge. It was something for the Food Network, but uh, yeah, you know I do a bit of everything. Is that is that a career that you're actively still trying to build, or uh, is it something that's just you do as a lark once in a while? Yeah, it's a lark. I mean, cartooning is my main my primary career. Um, I have been doing comedy for nearly 15, no, now 15 years, yeah. And it's something that, you know, there's no comedy during the day. So, <laughs> That's uh, a good statement, man. That's a pretty interesting philosophical statement. <laughs> yeah, I mean, comedy comes out at nighttime. So <laughs> since I was like 22, I guess, I was doing stand-up back in Perth, where I'm from, and uh, it was like I was six or seven. And, um, yeah, and then I just kept doing it. I did it in Melbourne for six years and then I moved to New York about eight years ago, kept doing it. And um, it's it's something that like, I never really had grand designs on like getting a, you know, a late night set and a comedy special and a, you know, tour, a theatre tour. Like that was never, for me, at least it was always just the doing it. I just enjoyed mm-hmm. it because I loved doing it and mm-hmm. all the extra stuff the show business side of it and the business of comedy. The business of comedy is a very big and challenging and all-consuming thing. Mm-hmm, um, sure. So, like, when I say there's no comedy during the day, I mean you're not performing during the day. But during the day, if you're a full-time comic, you've got to do all. You got to like put clips together for TikTok and Instagram reels, and you've got to, you know, try and book podcasts, and you've got to book tours, and you've got to try and, you know, build. Um, you know other things like develop a series or a you know build your special or try and shop a an animated series you know it's just it's just this non-stop 360 degree uh career mm-hmm. and that part of it i'm just not really interested i'm just not really interested in i just like getting up and doing stand-up it's so interesting because so many cartoonists are are kind of quiet shy introverts in a, in some way. at least that's the the what is it the cliche right that we like we sit at the drawing table and draw and and you know live in our little worlds and don't communicate with the real world unless we're really forced to but but uh you've you know i mean you've got that side of your personality that just you know it's something that you felt always felt the need to do or the desire to do well it's it, it, on the surface i know it sounds paradoxical to you mm-hmm. know be an introverted cartoonist and then want to get up in front of the room of strangers and perform. But really a comedian is, most comedians are like cartoonists, they're introverts. Um, Mm. And when you really think about it, we're getting up there with a microphone, we're the only ones with a microphone, and we've rehearsed that conversation, that one-way monologue, Mm -hmm. um, a a hundred times. So we know exactly how it's gonna go. It's like an introvert's dream. Uh, so a lot of comedians are introverts. We get up there, we do the thing that we know is going to work and we do the, you know, the routine that we know that we've said a hundred thousand times before. And then we get off stage and go to a quiet, dark room. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, that's the, 
it's a like you don't have to go into the audience and and hang out with everyone you you leave the stage so do, do you you never have that moment in like we do often do in conversations where you say oh i wish i'd said that that doesn't happen it does sometimes sometimes i'll think of a bit after i've got off stage where it's like a tag to a joke or someone uh-huh. If there was any crowd work where someone was yelling something out or, you know, there was a response to something and I thought of it like as soon as I stepped off stage, I'd do something and go, ah, I wish I'd tried that. It happens mm. sometimes and I write it down so that the next set I do that night or the following night, I'll try it. Um, but, yeah, that does happen. It's very frustrating. That does happen sometimes. So the, um, do you ever try out any any cartoon jokes? while you're on stage or is that like totally a distinct and separate thing yeah it's it's church and state it's weird a lot of people ask me if i have material about being a cartoonist because in theory that's a very interesting vein of comedy Mm -hmm. uh but i've never ever written a single joke in 15 years about being a cartoonist which is silly really i mean every writing coach you'd ever ask would tell you that's an insane thing to omit (laughs) Um, you know, the, 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 the key is to bring to the stage, um, you know, something unique and interesting that no one else can do or talk about. Um, mm-hmm. They're just talking about dating, talk about, you know, your perspective on dating, your perspective on everything. So, yeah, so I, I, I wish I could say I was um, organized and smart enough to have uh, <laughs> written good jokes about being a cartoonist. As yet, I haven't, although I have combined the two skills. There is a monthly show that I've been doing since 2013, Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's nearly 10 years. Um, It's called Picture This, and we do it one in L.A. every month and one in New York every month. And it's basically um, I get up and I'm usually hosting, and uh, what happens is we have one animator offstage on a Mm -hmm. Wacom tablet, drawing what the comedian is saying on a big screen projected behind them uh-huh. and the comedian can interact with it they can just look at it they can respond to it um and then each comedian has a different animator so it's different style each time and uh i started out as an artist doing that and then sort of started hosting and drawing for it and now i book it i book the animators for the show um, yeah, we do one. Uh, we, it sells out. It sells out every single month. It's it's at uh, Union Hall in Brooklyn, and then another one uh, at the Virgil in uh, LA. Uh, actually, there's a few different um, venues that we've done it at in LA. But uh, yeah, it's a really good show. So, uh, who are some of the the comedians you've had? Anybody I, I might have heard of? Yeah, almost certainly some of the biggest comics um, in the world have done it. It's 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 one of those shows that because it's a bit different and you're not just getting up and doing your set. A lot of um, uh, a lot of comics who will sort of you know take accept the challenge of of getting up there and and throwing caution into the wind and and seeing um, if a you know an animator or a cartoonist can bring something new to their material that they haven't thought of yet and that they can improvise on. Um, so like last, uh, last month's show, I was hosting and we had, uh, Nori Davis, uh-huh. uh, we had Anna Nanchola, we had Josh Gondelman, uh, Kate Willett, uh, Irene Morales. These are all sort of A-list sort of uh-huh. Netflix special artists and yeah. you know, they're all, they're all working comics now. And, and I think Josh was the head writer for, um, 
John Oliver for a long time. Oh wow, great, wow, fascinating. That's, I mean, it's incredible. It's a whole, a whole different world. Well, one of the things I was, I was interested in was, was also the style of writing for stand-up versus the style of writing for a comic strip. Um, now you yeah. do the writing for Ginger Megs as well, mm-hmm. don't you? As well as the art. Yeah, yeah, that's like. 65 70% of it is the writing <laughs> because yeah. yeah it's an established character that goes back 100 years so the writing is the challenging part we've got a lot of fans who are very particular about that canon yeah well i i was interested in the distinction between the two the two writing styles because although you might mine the same material or the same kind of everyday events or something yeah. um writing jokes for delivery in person versus writing jokes for delivery uh online or through the newspaper it's like two different mindsets isn't it two different kind of approaches to the form it is and it isn't because the mechanics of comedy are the same there's there's word economy and there's also where you put the word in the sentence um Uh to reveal the punchline uh there's beats so there's timing Mm -hmm. uh, and you can you can use all of those things just in a visual format so when you're doing a comic strip and you have four panels three or four panels you can use one of those panels as a beat in the way that you would take a beat on stage before delivering a punchline mm-hmm. um but you do definitely write it through a different prism so i write in my voice when i'm doing stand-up i have like a comic voice that i have been writing um you know it's very it's it's very silly and, and i don't do political stuff or offensive stuff or any of that i i'm very sort of um escapist silly absurdist um i'm always the butt of the joke it's very what i would call convex comedy sorry concave comedy so like i'm where i'm the butt of the joke as opposed to this convex Uh where you know people making fun of other people um and with ginger megs it's a character and a voice that's been established so i'm sort of writing in his voice i'm sort of writing in the in the style of of ginger and and my predecessor uh james kensley who did it from 83 to 2007 he -hmm. was always talking about that voice that like overarching uh, voice that you write everything through. You sort of uh, you sort of pump in the words through that filter, and then at the other end, you still have to apply those those elements and principles of comedy writing. I mean, it's 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 getting to the punchline. It's um, you know you can you can mask some of the um, the the joke by mm-hmm. you know throwing red herrings into the setup. Um, you can. You can really uh, make something funnier by using more words sometimes, mm-hmm. and other times you can show instead of tell, um, and that goes for comedy as well. If you can show something without saying it, uh, that's the gold standard. I love a my it's, my favorite cartoon is a captionless cartoon. So, yeah, funny pictures, as Charles Schultz would say, drawing funny. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's yeah, funny yeah. So, so um, uh, when you do. A- the live show does it do you when you do a joke is it like like in a comic strip the joke is like boom 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 it's it's like as you're saying there's rhythm and there's beats and and timing but it's also in and out it's very it's there and done right and very quickly when you're on stage you've got to kind of i don't want to say stretch it out but you've got to sort of build it up gradually right over a period of time i mean is there kind of a an average length of time for the the establishment and build up of a joke on stage or is it some of them are quick and some of them are yeah i mean it depends on the style i mean some comics are more storytellers and some Uh are more sort of gagsmiths where they have one-liners and then others 
they have bits and chunks, you know, they sort of have, they mix it up a bit. So there's some variety. So, you know, you can be the funniest one line of comic in the world, but if you're just doing one liners for 45 minutes, people are going to fall asleep. <laughs> um, you know, you've got to have some continuity in there. So in the same way that you can have a gag a day strip um, where it's just one joke per day, uh, you can also do like a six day arc on the same topic. So, you know, like, um, the uh, advice stand or something you know that you can have uh, themes and tropes that you can you can sort of as you say sort of stretch out across six days in a comic strip um where in stand-up you would call that a bit or a chunk <laughs> uh-huh. depending on depending on the length of it if it's like if it's one or two jokes on one thing then it's just i guess it's a bit um but if you've got like a whole chunk on going home for christmas that's a chunk that's like a you know, that's an arc. That's a story arc in a comic strip. Mm-hmm. So, uh, who were the who were some of the comics that you you look to? And I, I don't mean car- comic strips. I mean uh, stand up <laughs> comedians. Who are some of the comedians that you know influenced you and inspired you to get on stage and begin? We'll get to comics in a minute, but I'm, sure. I'm just curious about this other aspect of your life. Um, comics and comics. I'm, yeah, I'm, right? just, comics. I'm obsessed with comics in every sense. I know. One way or the other, that word is driving you. <laughs> <laughs> One um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I went to CXD this year. I went to Comics Crossroads in Columbus this year, and um, I was talking to Jenny Rog uh, at the uh, Billy Island Cartoon Museum and Library, and I was like, "Have you ever considered having some comics here at the <laughs> Comics Crossroads? But like having having comedians be part of the Comics Crossroads Festival? That'd be kind of an interesting addition for 2023." Um, comics that I really, really admired uh, growing up were unfortunately Bill Cosby. <laughs> um, uh-huh. When I was when I was a kid, we used to have this cabin that um, our friends had. Um, our family friends and us would every holiday we would go out to this cabin. It was on an island, um, and there was no TV and no radio because there's just no reception there. And we had a record player. We just had this old record player, and it was just old albums, um, great old music and jazz and comedy. And the comedy albums were Bill Cosby. And the thing is, we'd sit around after dinner listening to these things, and we'd listen to the same special like a thousand times, but we were still laughing at it. And it seems, as a kid, that seems like a magic trick. You're watching your parents and your friends laugh and you're like, how is he doing this? This is, it's like a man, how, you know, I want to learn how he does that. Mm. And then, you know, as time went on, Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld, that sort of style of comedy, Mm -hmm. um, Seinfeld really interested me, the observational style. um, And then Ricky Gervais with The Office and then doing his style of stand-up, which is more of a, a, you know, festival show, hour-long, you know, theatre-style show. Um, and I just sort of, you know, like I did with cartooning, uh, after that I vacuumed up every comic I could possibly find, like Patton Oswalt, I, I got really big into into about 2008, I was just, you know, um, devouring everything he'd ever done, and then going back and watching old Steve Martin, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and who I saw last week at, at Town Hall here in New York, he just had a book out with Harry Bliss, the cartoonist of the New Yorker. Um, and just sort of studying like their different styles because they all had such varying, very, very different styles of, of doing comedy. And, and there's no better way to learn than just like study the people who are doing it. Um, so those people were my, you know, 
big sort of influences. And then obviously later on, the Robert Kellys and the Louis C.K.s and Kevin Hart and and all those guys kind of brought, uh, you know, this sort of Boston comedy aspect where like Bill Burr and, and guys like that sort of came to New York and really blew up the scene uh, with their style of comedy, which is a very direct in your face kind of style. Um, yeah, and I really, really enjoyed sort of watching them uh, work at that. Um, my favorite living comedian is David Tell. I think he's probably the best working comedian in the world right now. And um, Dead, <laughs> famous uh, favorite Dead, I would say Patrice O'Neill. Patrice was easily one of the best of the best of all time. And uh, unfortunately, he died rather young, uh, as comics sometimes tend to do. Um, mm -hmm. But he was, yeah, he was a brilliant comedian. And uh, yeah, I think between Dave Attell and Patrice O'Neill, the standard, the quality, um, just overall between the two of them, um, really stuck with me the most, I think. Just, you know, at, at this end of things, mm -hmm. those two guys are the real pillars of, you know, in the pantheon of demigods of comedy for me. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, it, it, your discussion of Cosby reminds me of my own childhood. Uh, you know, mm. I I think I'm a bit older than you. I grew up in the '60s and um, and the '70s, but we had those records were around. You know, Bill yeah. Cosby's records, and we listened to those over and over and over again. There was yeah. Bill Cosby, and the other one that was really big for us then was was George Carlin. Of course, and yeah, Carlin yeah. and Cosby records, and uh, and then you know uh, another great disgraced comedian, Woody Allen. We had uh, <laughs> loved those albums too and yeah. and steve martin had a record the comedians that's interesting um those record albums were really important to us as kids mm. and to popularizing comedy among kids but i don't know do do comedians still record make record albums like that i don't even know i mean they've kind of been usurped by the special which yeah enough isn't a very special thing anymore to get, to do a special used to be an event like george carlin doing a special on HBO was like, oh my God, don't yeah. don't plan anything for Friday night because we're sitting down to watch George Carlin or Richie, you know, like the the like Richard Pryor's Life oh, God, Richard was like the definition of what a special should have been. And again, he's one of the best, like oh. Carlin and Pryor are two of the best of all time. But um they sort of uh, the, the the comics today what they'll do is they'll clip up their crowd work and put it on social so that they don't burn their material. And then when they go out on the road, they'll do their act, they'll do the material um, for the, for the audience who, you know, maybe saw them on, on, on TikTok or Instagram or whatever they saw them on YouTube. Um, so there's no more sort of doing a, a CD or like an album, although it's not dead. There are plenty of comics still doing an album album, like an uh -huh. audio album. Um, putting it on Spotify or putting it on Apple Music, um, but they make no money. It's not. It's not a money-making enterprise. It's a marketing thing to sell a tour or to basically put material to bed. So if you've been doing the same hour for two years, three years, uh, and you want to start a new hour, um, you would you would either record it as a special um, or do an audio album, record it, and then put that out so that that material is now buried. So when you record a special, is that something that, that is you no, know, I mean, I'm imagining that not all comics get offered the opportunity to do a special for Netflix or HBO or whatever. So, yeah. but is that something that 
that comics will do on their own. They'll rent a hall and they'll just, you know, go out there and record it. It's extremely expensive. The production, the production costs of doing a special are such that only people like Louis, who has independent money from his own stuff, could could afford to shoot his own special as he did. I mean, he he shot his, I think, in Philly or DC on his own time. He bought red cameras, like he brought he bought really expensive cameras that he used to shoot his TV show. And he got a DP and he got producers and he got a director and he got um, a lot of different people to produce this special independent of Netflix or Amazon Prime or anyone or Hulu. And um, yeah, that's so rare. You can very few people can afford to shoot their own. They usually have to have it done through a production company or, you know, for even even if it's done as a Netflix special, mm-hmm. Netflix comedy will be doing it. Um, or their company, you know, it's called Netflix as a joke, but um, the uh, you would it, it's a production company that's doing it for Netflix, um, uh-huh. and they definitely reach out and they would offer like a block, so they'd say, We're going to offer you a three special deal or a four special deal. Um, uh-huh. A friend of mine uh, here in New York, his name is Ronnie Chang, and he's on his third, I want to mm-hmm. say, third mm-hmm. special uh, of four for Netflix, and um, you know, he has to turn them out, it forces him to work. Because he has sure. to turn up four hours of material in, you know, six years. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's a lot to do. Uh, it, it's interesting. Do, um, do are comics looking like? Is the goal to do the specials, or is it to land a series, or is a series not as important as it used to be? Like, it, it seems like you know, in the seventies, eighties, nineties, doing a Seinfeld kind of thing. That was the ultimate goal, right? But is that still the ultimate goal for a comedian, or is it just, you know, to get the special out there, do the material, and then hit the road again? Or, or yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. That used to be the path. It was so prescriptive. It was that you'd go on Johnny Carson, right. and if you did well, he'd give you the OK symbol, which meant huh. basically you were minted. If you did well on the Tonight Show, and Johnny said, you know, gave the OK, uh, it basically meant that you would sell out your tour. You'd be offered you know, a series and a development deal from NBC or someone. Um, and the series would inevitably have your name in it. It'd be like, you know, everyone loves Raymond or everybody loves Raymond, Seinfeld. Um, and it would be the kind of thing where the series would be what made you and introduced you to American living rooms, you know, to, to, to the zeitgeist. You know, everyone would know you um, in the way that everyone knows who Jerry Seinfeld is or... Mm-hmm. Romano. But um, that kind of changed. I want to say around 2006, seven, a really big shift happened where instead of trying to have that be the end game, the the ultimate thing was to be able to have autonomy. So um, to have a, a uh, an ability to sell your own material through your own means. And even if it meant having HBO shoot it, um, it, it meant like, well, okay, once, once they've got their pound of flesh. Um, I want to be able to use this to sell this idea, which is a tour or a, or a new idea for a, for a show that's not technically a sitcom um, or a drama or a dramedy or a book. Uh, a lot of comics doing books, you'll notice. <laughs> it's, it's a crazy big industry now, comedians doing books. 
Um, you know, and and speaking of Woody, he was the king of of great comedy books. I mean, his yeah. the latest one that he just put out, Zero Gravity, is hilarious. Um, uh, but yeah, he it's 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 one of those things that now comics. I don't know that the special is the end game, but it's a means to getting their name out there so that they could do something else. Maybe they get a bit part in a series, uh, a comedic part in a Marvel film. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. sort of it's sort of this media landscape where a comedian is no longer just doing stand-up. They're doing acting, they're doing lectures, they're doing uh, presentations, and sometimes they're opening for bands, which is mm-hmm. for, like actual like arena tours. Um, sometimes they're, as I say, writing books, they're writing screenplays, they're uh, collaborating on like um, I think Phoebe Robinson is an interesting one. She's um, she had a podcast, has a podcast called Two Dope Queens, and she's now got a media empire. I mean, she's built her own media company. Oh. Um, in the same way, I mean, Kevin Hart has done the same thing. I think he's got his own TV channel now. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. It's sort of interesting watching comedians kind of pivot in the new media space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and it's and there is kind of this linear almost linear sort of correlation with comic artists and webcomics. And I follow that really closely, seeing what um, webcomic cartoonists are doing. And it was interesting at CXC, I was uh, watching the panel, which was webcomics past, present and future. Mm -hmm. And hearing the webcomic cartoonists from the early 2000s and late 90s um, talk about webcomics, it was just like listening to comedians talking about getting a late night set and trying to get a TV development deal and a sitcom and a this, it was like the same model that everyone thought, well, I want to do a thing and I want to, you know, I, I'm not going to get traditionally syndicated because those days are over, you know, in newspapers as, you know, they've been over, <laughs> the, the news of their death has been greatly exaggerated for a long time. But um, back then they were saying, well, this is how we do it now. And then the current um, uh, web comics cartoonists on apps like, you know, Toon Boom and uh, so not Toon Boom, sorry, on um, Webtoon, I should say, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and Tapas and apps like that, um, and Instagram, mm-hmm. and YouTube. They're all they're all talking in a different language. And then the cartoonists who are sort of talking about the next chapter, the next new thing, um, they're speaking another language. <laughs> so sure. comics um, who have been working for like forty years and having to adapt. Uh, the most fascinating ones to watch, like Bill Burr and and guys like that. Um, but then, yeah, there are new comics coming in who were born, you know, after 2000, and um, they're doing really well on these new media. And so, yeah, there is no prescriptive path anymore. That's been paved over, and um, now everyone's just kind of making their own version of whatever it is that that, that success looks like. There is no um definitive successful comedian anymore yeah it's it's interesting i mean a flood of questions run through my mind that i don't want to forget but um uh, before i go too far i just wanted to touch go back on on something a second and just ask you have you ever had the chance or had the desire to go on the road with your comedy oh yes it's my favorite thing i have and i do and um (laughs) my my favorite road tour (laughs) was was in October of 2016, 
uh, right before the election. And um, I did uh, Jersey and Indiana, Missouri, Kentucky, Mississippi, Alabama. Boy, was that an eye-opener for me. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've done, you know, and I've done Virginia and the Carolinas, but uh, boy, that was, uh, even Columbus, Ohio, I was like, the the contrast was amazing and um i think the road as like for a comic is probably the best thing it's like boxing training with extra heavy gloves on it's like you're swinging with a weighted bat like it's 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 the hardest um terrain to master um because if you're just playing to your home audience all the time and it's the same kind of people all the time, same kinds of crowds. They're laughing at the same kinds of things. They have common references. Um, and it's kind of, it's not a flat track, but it's like, it's easy enough to get a laugh. Um, and then you don't take that out to a variety of audiences from a variety of different backgrounds and, you know, um, areas with different vernaculars and all that sort of stuff. It's, I think, I think you're, you sort of only half, finding the potential of the material. Um, mm-hmm. So I love doing the road. And, and also I learn a lot about America and I learn a lot about people um, and what they laugh at when I do the road. Like people in Kentucky are laughing at very different things <laughs> than the people in Columbus, Ohio. And um, oh. like doing the, the laughing derby in, um, in Louisville, in, in, in Kentucky, a little bit different than doing the funny bone in a mall in Columbus. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> Yeah, you have to learn. You have to have a cal- you have to calibrate everything to read and react. So that thing that I was telling you about earlier, which is you do you're doing the same act that you've done a million times, and you go out there. Um, what you're doing is kind of taking a, a litmus test, a sort of like a like a census of each audience by watching the host and what people are laughing at when the host comes out, because that's usually a local comic. Um, you're watching what people are laughing at with the feature acts. Um, and kind of the style of comedy even. Like, so you can kind of slightly tweak things. Like, you're still being yourself and you're still being your act, but you're not changing, um, not changing the fundamentals of, the, of, the, of the, the set. You're just sort of being malleable and sort of, um, uh, I guess, tra- yeah, changing tact for, for different audiences. And that's a really fascinating skill to sort of, I love it. I mean, it's my favorite thing. I've got a friend doing cruise ships right now. That's a new. Oh my god! Yeah, that one's in a big one. Um, he's never done. He's never done that before. He's done the road, but he's never done cruise ships. And now he's learning how to do, you know, three thirty-minute shows across two days: one family-friendly, one dirty show, one middle-of-the-road show um, on a ship with like, you know, thousands of people. <laughs> it's it's a really <laughs> It's a totally new skill to learn. And like I say, the, the more you do that, the better you get because it's tough. It's really tough. I can imagine that it is. Uh, and thinking about a cruise ship, you're talking about the difference between Columbus and, and Kansas. And, and you think about a cruise ship is filled with thousands of people from all over the place. Who knows where they're from? Yeah. So trying to, exactly. to reach that audience is a, a a real challenge too and and absolutely i could i could definitely understand the distinction between an east coast audience and a, an audience in middle america yeah I, I get that distinction but it's harder to imagine like a distinction when you're in a middle middle america you know the distinctions between regions there uh that's that's yeah. a kind of subtle distinction that that um 
is, you know, a lot of us, particularly those of us, I mean, um, who've seen a kind of the what, what you might call the the box storification of of America, uh, you know, the last yeah. few years, you know, we bemoan the homogenization of America. You drive down one street in one town and you yeah. go to the next state in another town. It all looks the same. And so it's kind of you know, heartening to hear that the regional differences that, of, that, you know, were always so prevalent are still in, in yeah. some, I mean, in some ways it's a drag because it, it means that we end up with political views and, and views on what's important and what our priorities right. should be that end up really being at odds with one another. But then at the same time, it's really important, I think, to be able to, you know, to drive, across route 66 through the United States and, and still enjoy the distinctions from place to place, you know, uh, what yeah. a drag if every place was the same. Exactly. Well, that's the point. That's what I love about America is that it is like a bunch of different countries. It, it feels like Europe sometimes. It's sort of, when I moved here, um, Australia is a very, speaking of homogenized, I mean, it's a very white country and it's very samey. Pretty much every city is pretty much the same with slight variations on a theme. Um, I love it. I love Australia. It's just not as, it's not as old as America and it doesn't have the same history and it doesn't have the same, we didn't have a civil war, you know, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's a totally different landscape. So when you do the road in Australia, pretty much everyone's getting the same references. Mm -hmm. um, if you do uh, stand up in America. Yes. It definitely, every town has, you know, a Starbucks and a, you know, and a, and a CBS. Um, but it's also, or, you know, you can make Amazon warehouse jokes and people are going to get them. Um, people are going to get the jokes. And and now that that um, common, you know how, like, you used to have consensus comedy, like back in when you when everyone tuned in to Johnny Carson and yeah. were watching people tell jokes, the premises of the, those jokes were universal pretty much. They were, they were about food, they were about dating, they were about travel, usually airplane travel, um, mm -hmm. clothing, you know, things that everyone did and could relate to. Um, and at that time, you could pretty much gather the demographic of people watching that show. So you can kind of understand, oh, this will really do well in Carson. Whereas now um, the Internet is the only um, <laughs> consensus thing we have in common. And even that is fractured. So, you know, we're all on Amazon, you know, shopping on Amazon. We're all on, you know, social media. Um, and so that's the only thematic thing that we're kind of all looking at. We're all looking at this black, you know, mirror, <laughs> this black thing in our hands uh, that's shining and, and showing us glowing, you know, news and apps and videos and everything and communication. So that becomes the new consensus sort of, you know, paradigm. That's the, that's the one thing a lot of comics talk about. They talk about dating apps, they talk about Amazon shopping, they talk about ads, they talk about social media, memes, you know, um, it's, it's, and it's a lot of, you know, write what you know, write what everyone's yeah. doing and what you're doing and put your spin on it so that it's not the same as every other comedian. Um, but yeah, it's a big, it is a big challenge with that homogenization. That's a big challenge. Yeah, I, I was just I was just thinking I've, one of the you're talking about, you know, touchstones and one of the frustrations, not a frustration. I don't know. One of the things you notice as you get older is that you, you, especially with with something like popular culture and comics on um, uh, television or, or wherever you're seeing them, um, touching on things that you have little to do with as you grow older. Like, for example, I had no idea what Tinder was for, <laughs> for years and years because I've been married for. Yeah. 
what, I don't even know how many years now, you know, over 35 years. Wow. And so why would I even, you know, it's like, not, it's not ever entered my consciousness and I don't really yeah. have television per se. I don't have, I haven't had cable forever. I lived in New York for yeah. a long time and, you know, didn't have cable and we moved upstate and we just started streaming stuff and gave up on television in the, in that sense. <laughs> um, yeah. Cut the cord. So there's a lot of stuff that I, I don't have connection with anymore and nor do I care to, but as you, it's interesting as you watch younger comedians come up, uh, you, you realize that you're not, you, you don't understand half of what they're talking about sometimes because you're just, you've let so many of those things go by. Yeah. I shop you know on what? Amazon and stuff, but apps yeah. and stuff, you know, you know, it's like a few things here and there I'll play with, but I mean, there's very little that I, I, I deal with on a, yeah, well, it, even me, I mean, I'm, I'm 38, and there are things that young comics are talking about now with Bumble and Hinge and Tinder. I've been married 10 years, and uh-huh. I got married before the apps kind of were around. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I've been with my partner since before Tinder was around. So um, I definitely didn't get in on that horrible mess of a thing of, of people swiping on you. So when I heard comedians talk about it i had to have them explain to me what the hell it was and there's a new one every five minutes so now i'm like having to learn always having to learn what the new one is i you know and i'm it's just there is so much volume yes to keep up with and it's really challenging and i'm you know uh, i think you're right i mean people's context is is different so if people get up there a comic gets up there and starts talking about tinder you better hope most of the audience are young people who use tinder or did meet on tinder you know because it's it's such a specific experience it's such a unique experience and even if you explain it to the audience you know you preface it by saying oh it's this app where you swipe left if you swipe right blah 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 it still doesn't quite hit the same note as something that everybody does um so yeah those things those specific things can definitely alienate people well, it's interesting too, because, uh, and, and this goes into, I mean, writing for anything, whether it's comic strips or comic, mm-hmm. but you know, I mean, you have to kind of know who your audience is if you don't know yeah. who your audience is. And, and, uh, you know, I know this is true because, well, you know, for example, I, I remember I was, I was, uh, I had an assignment in a class I was teaching and these guys were doing comic strips and they were doing gag comics. And this one kid did a comic strip that ended with a joke about catfishing. Right. Okay. Well, you know, I have no idea what the hell that was. So the joke went totally over my head and I'm critiquing this kid based on, well, you know, this, this is not working the way it should, because I don't really know what this catfish is doing here all of a sudden. And it's like, well, there's this thing called catfish. They had to explain the whole thing to me, you know, and I'm like, man, you know, and it's funny. You can just watch the culture, like, you know, drifting away, like, like you're a, you know, like it's a a boat that's heading out to sea and you're lost on this little island, you know, and, and it's, it's just weird. But it, so if you're in a nightclub, you've got to count on the fact that it's after nine o'clock. Most of your audience yeah. is going to be in the twenties or thirties. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah. In Australia, it's 18 to 34. And in uh, America, it's 21 to 40, 21 to 40. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
21 to 40. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I could see that, you know, although after 38, 39, I don't know. There wasn't much, wasn't much in the way of that. I needed to get my sleep. But anyway. Well, I mean, it's, it's theater shows after that. It's people going to see yeah. one comic do a theater show like Jerry or someone at yeah. the Beacon, you know, versus going to a club and seeing six or seven different comics um, and having a two drink minimum and leaving yeah. the club at 12 am you know it's sort of it's a a totally different experience gotta get home to the kids gotta you know the next day i I mean i see people here in new york who seem to be pretty switched on and connected people just sort of scratching their heads at meme culture and references that are so like esoteric that they're just like what what does that mean is this like they missed a news item that day because they're getting a different news source they're like what did come you do what like it's just (laughs) It's it's fun to watch and it's also terrifying because it means everyone's information diet is so fractured and the result is that um, it's good and bad. The result is that um, people really find their audience. So when you say writing for your audience, in the way that I'm, I really love reading certain comic strips and I'm I'm definitely the target audience for a certain kind of gag cartoon or comic strip. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm definitely not the target audience for others. So. Yeah. You know, and I think uh, strips like Kathy and uh, Cul-de-Sac and um, Garfield, you know, as, as broad as Garfield is, if you've never had a pet, you've never had an animal, you may not connect with Garfield the way that a cat owner or a, or a pet, you know, a pet <laughs> owner would connect with it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Although, although like, somehow I think Garfield transcends, but you know, I mean, Garfield was a phenomenon, right? So, yeah, yeah, it's one of those a marketing st- phenomenon for sure. What's that? A marketing a phenomenon. Marketing yeah. phenomenon. And, and Jim, I, I spoke to Jim Davis today. Um, it's weird. I, it, it's surreal to me that I'm even in contact with Jim Davis, let alone having a conversation with him. But uh, he is still. Uh, today, like at, at his age, at his point in his career, he's still looking at new, interesting ways of, of doing comics and encouraging young cartoonists, like finding students at Ball State Art, um, oh, like, uh, art College and people. Like he's just trying to further the, the art form. He's not just resting on his laurels and kicking back in Muncie, Indiana. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's always engaging, which is rare. I think, I, thought- rare. I mean, yeah. yeah, it is. Right. I was going to say, I thought he sat back on his throne and oversaw a vast empire, you know? I mean, partly, yes. He, does, yeah. he definitely has, a, he has his minions, there's no question. Uh, he has a giant place out there in Muncie. Um, I did comedy out in Muncie, Indiana, and it did not go well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Jim is, yeah, he's out there and, uh, you know, he's a he's a real man of the, of the people and of the town. Like, he cares about what what's happening in indiana and in um you know at the in the, in the ncs like he's very active in the national cartoon society and he's he's always like helping with charity and fundraising and the rubens like he's always putting his hand up to help like he's he's the epitome of like the perfect example of wow what you would hope um you know they say never meet your heroes but yeah. man jim he's he's a really very special 
Wow, that's really that's so cool to hear, really. You know, because yeah. because you know, I'm I've got in my head that B. Clibben cartoon of you know uh, of the cartoonist mm. to walk, you know, out of the well, way. Scum. Yeah. Out of the way, scum. Cartoonists uh, approaching. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, every time I think of a successful cartoonist, I think of B. Clibben's cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's funny. In When I grew up, all I ever wanted to do was be a cartoonist. And I didn't even see that cartoon until I was like five years in. And I was like, wait, was there an era with <laughs> like rock stars? Like, is this something I missed? And then I saw a film called How to Murder Your Wife with Jack Lemmon. Oh, yeah. And he lives in this like gilded townhouse, like yes. mansion in Manhattan. And I'm like, wait a second. What is this? <laughs> like, I've, I've really come to the party just as they're sweeping up the cups. This is, this is <laughs> wow. And uh, I don't know, that that image, because I have that on my wall. You know, I think every cartoonist has that on their wall. Because um, yeah. it makes me laugh all the time. Just because the joke will always be that cartoonists are the Robbie <laughs> Dangerfield of professions. They just don't get no respect. You know, they, ne- they never quite... Like fine artists get galleries and exhibitions, they get billions you know, of dollars. Yeah, and comic artists have to just kind of hope for the best. You know, that's why it was so moving to see the Billy Island. I did the tour this time, mm-hmm. and just seeing comics treated like fine art was oh. it was it meant a lot. Like it it changes the way that you feel about your chosen profession. You think, well, maybe there is hope that you know, that our, that our craft could be preserved and respected the way that, you know, things are at the Met. You know, I go yeah. to the Met all the time, and I love fine art and sculpture and textiles and everything, but, uh, boy, would it kill them to put a few caricatures in there? <laughs> Maybe some <laughs> old onodomiers or something, you know, like something, there, anything. Well, it's really interesting. You think about those Met retrospectives for great painters and great sculptors and whatnot, you know, and they have these, I mean, it's huge. You'll see a big banner in front of the Met, you know, the the Met's great facade. You'll see this huge banner with, you know, with Caravaggio or Manet or whoever's name is up there, you know, uh, and and it's like, oh, monumental, you know, and you're, you're, you're overwhelmed with the importance of this extraordinary artist in their contribution to history and to the world and civilization. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, you know, no, no, nothing like that for, you know, Robert Crumb. There's nothing like that, right. you know, Tony millionaire. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Tony millionaire. Can you imagine that bird on a big banner? <laughs> oh my God. It would be a bit drunk. <laughs> yeah. Drinky drink crow. Right. Uh, oh, oh my God. Hilarious. Laurie side for seven years. Yeah. I loved Tricky uh, Crow, man. Yeah. Crazy, crazy cartoonist. I love Tony Million is hilarious, but uh, he is hilarious, and and his stuff is amazing. But I, I actually, he's somebody I should try to get on the show. But sure. definitely, yeah. I think the Schultz Museum, I think, is probably the closest thing yeah. to a banner in the sky for a. You know, I wish there was a Watterson Museum and a Thompson oh, yeah. Manor. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a, you know. A Trudeau Museum, and but you know, it, it, having the Schultz Museum, like especially this past weekend with the hundredth anniversary, mm-hmm. well, he's, he would, would have been his hundredth birthday, I should say, um, right. and all of the cartoonists pitching in and doing a special tribute to Sparky, oh, um, and just seeing how they did it. Joe Worst was there, and he was sending me photos from what they were doing at the museum, mm-hmm. and it was so cool. It's like the amount of people that this man's work touched. Oh, and yeah. affected and influenced like a generation of cartoonists. 
Oh, um, and readers, you know, it, it's just it's unlike any other phenomenon. Music, you know, I think music is probably the closest thing I could think of where you know, I don't know, Deadheads, you know, <laughs> like Grateful <laughs> Dead or the Rolling Stones or you know, Prince. I don't know, j- just who, to have that reach across generations that still works, that's still good, mm-hmm. like it, it as good today as it was when it first ran. Like what music? There's very little music. The Beatles, I guess. I mean, there's so few songs that just still hit the same chord with people time to time. Uh, that you know, it, today it, you could just play it on the radio and it would have the same, you know, effect. It's it's rare, and Schultz was definitely one of those people. Oh yeah, no question about it. No question about it. And and uh, I mean, the sh- yeah, the the reach was incredible. The the impact of the work is incredible. Uh, and and he's definitely the pinnacle, I think, of of both critical and commercial success. There's no no doubt yeah. about it. You know, all of us have that dream of being able to reach an audience the way that he reached his audience and to have that kind of impact. But yeah. Thank God at least one of us did. But um, <laughs> I, I was thinking about that Jack Lemmon movie and that lifestyle that you're talking about. And and yeah. it really was available, you know, right in the 30s and 40s for, for a select few. People like Milton Kniff lived sure. really well. Uh, I think it's based Alex, on What's that? I think it's based on him. It's an adventure strip cartoonist. So oh, Okay. Yeah. Milton Kniff, yeah. yeah, or yeah. Alex Raymond. Raymond had a place in Westport, Connecticut, which was, I think, even then, you know, one of those ritzy, wealthy, um, outside of New York kind of enclaves. Still and, is. <laughs> yeah, still is. And, uh, and yeah. So it, it was available then, but man, it <laughs> it has sunk so low since then. No, I mean, I mean, it's it's just the the well, it's it goes to what you were talking about, really, about how the audience is fractured and everything's like in a niche yeah. now. We always talk. We're all talking about the niche audience, right? Yes. Uh, and that kind of thing, and um, and and trying to build a career. There's so many different ways of doing it now, whereas the syndicate model. And I hesitate to say this to the president of the National Cartoonist Society, <laughs> but the syndicate model is kind of falling apart, and I think it's yeah, something it has. We're all, yeah. you know we're all aware of, and um, yeah. and it's it's just not the same playing field any longer. But let's let's um, before I get into all of that kind of stuff because that can be sure. really depressing and really a downer. Um, let's. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about, uh, you know, the cartoonists that inspired you. And so you've, you've outlined a few of them. How did you get started? Um, you said you've always been drawing. So, yeah. you know, how did this this career path begin for you? When did, when did Jason Chatfield, you know, decide <laughs> to be a cartoonist? And, and yeah, uh, I'm, it's a strange, you know, I ask every cartoon. I think you probably have the same thing. Every cartoonist you meet. Mm-hmm. You ask the same kinds of questions, like who, how did you get into this crazy thing? Um, in the way that prisoners talk to each other, like, what are you in for? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, what are you in yeah, for? it definitely had, like, for me, it was just the one medium that I vanished into as a kid. I, I would carry a you know little sketchbook around with me everywhere I went, in the way that kids carry smartphones now, um, or iPads, you know. Uh, I, I would just sit and draw constantly. I drew everything I ever saw, you know, built up this visual vocabulary and watched, you know, things like Ren and Stimpy and, um, you know, The Simpsons and all the old Warner Brothers cartoons. I was a big fan of that style of the Chuck Jones. 
um, sort of era um, and uh, Tex Avery kind of, you know, animation, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of rubbery. I, my style was very much that when I was growing up. So um, I didn't know anything about animation. So the only job in town in Perth, which is the most isolated city in the world, uh, it was a, it's a one newspaper town with one cartoonist. And uh, there was one other cartoonist who was kind of like a part-time guy who did the community newspapers. Uh -huh. But the main daily cartoonist is still there now. He was there in 1987. He's still working for the West Australia, which is... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that's a hell of a... Who, who do you know that has a career that goes, you know, like 35 years? So, um, yeah, I saw that and was like, all right, well, then I'll do that if that's a job. Because I didn't know what a, you know, what, what a cartoonist did. I didn't go to college. Um, I, I did enroll uh, for a communications degree, but I deferred and then just never went. Started mm -hmm. working as a printer and learning how to do design and print, you know, actual print process and finishing and all that sort of stuff, which was a great skill to learn um, for later, you know, producing. Mm -hmm. Sure. And uh, yeah, I just really, I, once I like something, I just dive headfirst into it. It's like the comedy. It's yeah. I just I just vacuumed up every ounce of cartoonist material I could find at libraries. You know, I I was reading Calvin and Hobbes collections. I was obsessed with Watterson, um, and then later Richard Thompson. Um, I think they're both. I think both of those cartoonists had a really really big impact on my um, just my brain. <laughs> just mm -hmm. they rewired my brain. Um, and you know, I read comics there was a comic section in the newspaper and there was only like two australian comic strips at the time that uh in my paper and um yeah and i sort of i didn't think that was a viable job for me because the syndication newspaper syndication i had no idea how it worked and how to get into it um so it was so alien to me so i just tried to be an editorial cartoonist so i started working at the local paper i asked them if they needed a cartoonist and they didn't and then i said well, <laughs> do it anyway and so they were like well if you work like and I was you know I was young so I could work I could pull insane shifts so I was doing like proofreading and ad layout and copy editing and, and um, a little bit of writing but mainly um, you know just just grunt work at a newspaper um, seven days a week I was pulling sometimes I was pulling like 20 hour shifts which just totally illegal uh, but I was, I learned so much just by doing, you know, by moving from the printing, um, company to the newspaper company. Um, I learned all about newspapers, um, and doing editorial cartoons and churning cartoons out really fast, learning how to turn it because the deadline was 3 PM and I would get the story at 12. So. Sure. It was you don't have a lot of time. Yeah, and uh, in between, I'd like, drop a couple of pages on my desk to proofread. Jeez, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm trying to draw. Anyway, uh, that was a real masterclass in, I had a good editor, his name is Brian Mitchell. So that was a masterclass in like trying to work fast into a deadline and keep consistent. Um, and then uh, I joined the Australian Cartoonist Association, and that, again, opened up sort of so much um to me being exposed to different styles and different kinds of cartoonists illustrators and comic book artists and um uh, sort of animators and design like you know character designers caricaturists and um that was when i started accepting my caricature commissions and doing live caricatures at events 
and I was the only one doing it in Perth, so I could charge whatever I wanted. It's just been <laughs> an amazing what thing really for a while there. <laughs> it was great. And uh, I moved to Melbourne after that um, because my uh, the president of the Australian Cartoonists Association was a guy called James Kensley, and he was doing the big sort of iconic Australia's version of, I guess, uh, Dennis the Menace called Ginger Megs, and it's, it's been around since 1921, very iconic Australian strip. And uh, we became good friends, James Kinsley and I, we would produce the club newsletter together uh, at the ACA. And uh, we also had a similar sense of humor and he was an actor as well and a comedian. So he, we had a lot in common. We had a lot of similar sort of um, uh, influences. And uh, unfortunately he got motor neuron disease. He got ALS. Um, yeah. So uh, he died uh, when he was 59. He died quite oh, yeah. So uh, a few days before he died, he asked me if I would take over the strip. And uh, and I did. And I was 23. Wow. I had never done a comic strip. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I, I uh, My first reaction was no. And then he said, I asked all these other cartoonists, and they said, you'd be the perfect person to take it over. And I was like, I don't know who you asked, but they are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I eventually learned. They all chipped in. Like, it was the most amazing thing in the world. Like, all the other cartoonists started sending me gags to get me on my feet, and they started sending me advice on how to do a daily strip. Because it's a day. I mean, it's six dailies in a Sunday every single week. Right. Forever. <laughs> right. So... Yeah, it's a it's a it's a definite it's a lifestyle for sure. And uh, once that deadline, once you submit the strips for that week, the clock just resets, and your whole life is counting down to that next deadline. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I was still doing all of that at once. I was doing caricature comic uh-huh. strips. I was doing um, the, the the editorial cartoons. I was just like one hundred percent cartooning, and it sort of just. Yeah, exploded from there. That's how I got into it. Oh, how do you, uh, you know, I mean, given the schedule that you still have to maintain, because you you do Ginger Mags again, you're still doing it six mm-hmm. days, seven days a week, and then you've also you're also doing the comedy, you're also doing cartoons for the New Yorker, and you're also the president of the National Cartoonist Society. So how is it that you can juggle all of this stuff, man? I mean, are there three or four of you? Yeah, I've got a few clones here, but they're yeah, more gonna... like uh, it's they're more like dumb ones, like in multiplicity. <laughs> <laughs> they're all Michael. They all look like Michael Keaton. Um, the the thing is, like, I've always been pretty disciplined about time management, probably out of necessity, but also because of working in newspapers. The the, the clock doesn't stop just because you know, so, you know, you got to you got that deadline. The the paper has to go to press. Yeah. Um, they're going to hold the press for you. So that always drilled into me. A deadline's a deadline, and I live pretty much my whole life to deadlines. Um, so I just create them for myself if no one else does. And um, I was the president of the ACA back in Australia. And after so Kemsley, after Kemsley died, I uh, took over from him uh, about four years later. And um, uh, the thing about all of that is it does kind of fold into each other. So as I say, like I can work all day on cartooning and then go out at night and do gigs. Um, do sets, you know, of comedy. Um, and at the time when I was really doing like four or five shows a night, my wife was, uh, she's a musician, she was going out and uh, performing at like piano bars and music gigs and we'd sort of go out and do gigs together and then well in our separate, you know, venues and then sort of come together at the end of the night and share horror stories about, <laughs> about you know, the different gigs. 
Um, but yeah, it's all, it's, it's all time management. I work from a calendar instead of a to-do list. That's a big piece of it. I, I wrote it up on Medium. I wrote up what my, how I manage it all. And uh, that kind of went a bit viral <laughs> because I thought I, everyone was doing that. And turns out it was a, a thing, the way that I was time blocking it um, was relatively new at the time. And then Cal Newport came out with a book called Deep Work, which kind of better illustrated how that works, how that mm-hmm. style of working works. Um, so yeah, I, I manage it all. Um, the one piece of it that I should mention is that this year, only about, about a month ago, uh, Rupert Murdoch, in all of his glorious wisdom, decided to kill off all comic strips in all of his newspapers everywhere. So, in Australia, I should say. Um, so, every major metropolitan daily newspaper in Australia, I was in, and every regional, I was in. But Murdoch News Corp had bought up all the regionals as well and centralised production of all of them. Mm-hmm. Um out of New Zealand, of all places. Uh, but yeah, they they basically killed all the comic strips. So in one pen stroke, every single Australian comic strip cartoonist, uh, I mean, there were five of us, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was out of job. Uh, so I'm still doing the Sunday strips every week, uh-huh. uh, as I've always been. But the dailies are in repeats now because there's no, yeah, it's they're just, they're only running online um, on Go Comics. And uh, the, the, the only paper is still running it in a daily are sort of regionals and um they're running them sort of you know three days a week four days a week um out of sequence kind of so doing a doing a daily doesn't make a, a lot of sense um but yeah we're developing an animated series though we have a production company attached to that so that's kind of the that's where my time that was dedicated to the daily strip has gone into developing the animated series um well, there's a lot to ask about there too, but well, one, if I ever, if, and I'm not one of those who needed to be convinced that Rupert Murdoch is like Satan, but you know, that, that is really, that's unbelievable. It's really scary. The idea that one individual or organization could buy up all of these news media outlets and, and, you know, tailor the information the public gets to their specifications you know absolutely yeah, and in australia it's very very pronounced because oh, those are the highest circulation newspapers and news websites so everyone in australia pretty much read those and it's not something that most people you know i mean unless you're a news junkie you know or somebody in media it's not something that everybody pays attention to who owns the newspaper in the town you know mm-hmm for most people it'll just slip right by and they won't even notice it because they're going to work every day whatever and they pick up they don't think about it all of a sudden the news is being you know shaped and formed from a particular perspective and you're not even aware of it and not to say that it wasn't before but man it's it's like the the lee enterprises and gannett Mm -hmm. sort of things where they've just like bought up all of these newspapers have sold them up for scrap for parts and pretty much all centralized not a lot of the news is localized anymore which is the whole point of a local paper and the cartoons are just sourced from you know a central point there's no like local cartoonist anymore drawing from there's very very few of them left and yeah yeah, as you say it's a homogenized like single idea um, and people don't really i guess unless they're really active they don't really take a minute to go hang on why who's telling me this where is this coming from you just read it you think well that's the news well, you know, and, and the the uh, I guess the 
paradoxical uh, result of that too is that that people come away with this idea that no news is authentic news. There's this idea that you know all news is fake news, and so the only person you can believe is this fool you know uh, who was once in the White House, unbelievable. And but you know the the thing is is are my politics obvious or what? But you know. <laughs> Uh, but okay, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, maintain You're talking power. to an immigrant. It's okay. I hate him too. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Uh, anyway, so, you know, it's like, I mean, what was I trying to say? I've lost my train of thought there. Anyway, well, sorry, the, the, the homogenization. Of, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's like the, the converse is that people turn around and they say, well, you know, none of this news is believable because it's all being shaped by some, somebody somewhere, but you know, it, there was a time when there were, you know, this idea of ob some sense of objectivity or some some fidelity to the notion of objective reporting of of reporting the news as it happens, you know, right, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And we're that's all slipping away. It's really, you know, along with the cartoonists, we're also lo losing journalists and we're losing the idea of local journalism. We do have people with uh, cell phones, which is great. <laughs> You know capturing you know but it's not quite the same thing it's not exactly the same thing as as the editorial process and fact checking and yeah. like even like at the new yorker i do stuff for the new yorker a bit and um you know many gay cartoons and some editorial pieces and shouts and illustrations but like even when for instance there was a story that was written about uh a lunch that we had all the cartoons had a lunch with gus van sant one day um because he had a film out about a cartoonist and uh it was written up and i i made a joke uh, on, on the day to sam gross who was sitting across from me because uh, he showed us this <laughs> very offensive cartoon which is great it was uh it was uh jesus pole vaulting using a cross like a giant cross and uh i said that's great crossfit right and uh Everyone just groaned. And I was like, yeah, I know, that's a shitty joke. But um, then the fact checkers called me from the New Yorker and said, uh, yeah, hi, we just need to confirm, uh, did you make a terrible joke and everybody groaned? <laughs> I'm like, well, hang on, are you going to print this? Like, They're like, yeah, yeah, in the article, Emma Allen, the cartoon editor, wrote it up and said, yeah, Jason made a joke, CrossFit, and everybody groaned. I was like, wow, come on. All right, I guess it'd be fact checking. It's true, but I don't want to print. And I, I talking to the fact checkers, I was like, "You really? This is your job? You have to call people?" And they're like, "Yeah, this is the entire job." Um, and I'm so fascinated by that that being a thing that's so rare now. Fact checkers, yeah. Um, and many of the people in the New Yorker softball team that we play with every year, they're all fact checkers. So it's mainly fact checkers and cartoonists. Um, <laughs> and it's such a rare thing now to have fact checkers. God forbid, fact checkers. Oh my God! But it's it, you know, I mean, you think about it. It's a, it's like a, a necessary evil, if you will. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's important. But yeah, it is one of those. It's one of those jobs. It's it's one of those jobs you never realized existed. But I suppose it's one of the things that <laughs> keeps the cogs going, right? Or turning. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So so w working for the New Yorker must be a unique experience. I mean, uh, and and that did. How did that come about? Um, was that something you had been submitting to for thousands of years and then finally <laughs> one day the, the doors opened or was that yeah. all? Well, that was part of my sort of that, that cloistered um, 
exposure to cartooning in Australia was that um, we didn't really get the New Yorker. So <laughs> right. I, had, I had a dentist who had a subscription and I went to the dentist very, very rarely, but on the rare occasion that I did go, I would steal New Yorker cuts. <laughs> I would steal like tear out pages from his New Yorkers in the waiting room. Because uh, I'd never seen anything like I didn't. We didn't have gag cartoons, and not a very big gag cartoon um, market in Australia. Mm-hmm. Certainly not now. Um, but uh, yeah, so I had always thought, oh, I wonder how you submit to that, and then heard that it's incredibly difficult. It's like getting into the Olympics. Yeah. And, so I didn't bother for a long time, and then I moved to New York after you know I'd submitted a few times via this app email thing that they had uh, to Bob Mankoff, but uh, I never I never got a response, um, as is very common, uh, most common. And uh, then when I moved here, actually, I was like, well, I'm in New York. I can submit in person. I can go in and actually sit down with Bob and, and talk about the batch. And that was actually the big game changer for me was actually sitting with a cartoon editor, a cartoon editor, can you imagine? And talking about the cartoons and why they weren't good or why this one doesn't work and why this one's not very good. Um, mostly about why they're not good. Uh, <laughs> but you learn a lot very quickly by someone picking apart your work and then actually showing you how to how to fix it uh, rather than just like blindly submitting for years and years and years, um, you know, and getting just vacuum of space silence back. So, um, yeah, so I, I sold my first cartoon to Bob Mankoff. And then he left and Emma Allen replaced him. And I was selling pretty regularly to Emma. Um, and, and then I started doing sort of other things like with them, sort of like illustration shout, uh, daily shout things and um, uh, bits and pieces. It's just sort of, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's not regular work. I don't know. There used to be an ability for a New Yorker cartoonist to make a living doing just that. And that those days are well and truly over, uh, unfortunately. Um, you know, some cartoonists even had contracts uh, with the magazine, certain amount of cartoons due every month. You know, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, it's and and it's and it comes back to our conversation about um, writing for your audience. Is well, you're not going to write gags for the New Yorker the way you write for the comic strip, um, and you're not going to write gags the way you write jokes for stage. You're writing them for a New Yorker uh, audience. And um, that took a lot of practice to try and figure out the just that style of jokes and, yeah. and doing gag cartoons with the caption at the bottom so that you see the image, your eye goes to the caption and then back up to the image and mastering that language because it's mm-hmm. very much a language you have to learn. Um, I find that really fascinating. And my, some of my favorite cartoonists are, are gag cartoonists. Um, I think Ed Steed is one of the one of the best working right now, um, Edward Steed, and um, watching people like that play with the conventional styles and the conventional ideas of what a New Yorker cartoon looks like. That's really fun. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's not something I do super regularly, but I submit every week, um, and you know I get in once in a blue moon. Did you, did you, in order to, it sounds fascinating actually to sit down with a cartoon editor and really go over the mechanics of your comic. Yeah. Um, I mean, that must be an incredible opportunity and great learning experience. Um, does anything stick out from one of those sessions as a, a general idea that 
you know, those listening might keep in mind if they're if they're ever thinking of submitting to the New Yorker or trying to do those kind of gag cartoons. Yes, quite a big one, actually. And it was Bob Mankoff. I mean, Emma Allen, I would sit down with her every Tuesday morning at 10 and I would always sit. Like, uh, eventually we, we would sit down for less and less time because there were more and more cartoonists coming in. Um, and she would give great advice on why a joke wouldn't be in the maybe pile or the yes pile. Um, sometimes it was because it had been done before or a similar idea that they already had bought one like that. But then the one thing that's, so she maintains this same piece of advice, but I first heard it from Bob Mankoff and he was analogizing. He, he does this, but uh, he, he has great hair. Bob has big, big curly hair. Big frizzy oh, hair. Wow. And um, he pointed at my hair when I sat down in front of him with my batch and he looked through it and I had kind of tried to ape what I thought, the style of what I thought a New Yorker cartoon looked like. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, you know, there was this style guide almost where, you know, a, a, a New Yorker cartoon looks like Peter Arno or, you know, it looks like a certain style of cartoonist, uh, you know, gray washes and yes. fast lines. Um, uh, but he said, he looked at my hair and he said, why, why did you decide to do your hair like that? Uh, and I had gelled it. I'd sort of got this, you know, my fringe was up. And, mm-hmm. and I said, I don't know. I just kind of, I guess that's just how I, how I do it. I don't even think about it. And he goes, so when you sit down to draw a cartoon, do you, do you just do it? You do not think about it? Or do you, are you trying to make it look like a certain thing? Like you didn't do your hair this way because it's in style. It's not in fashion. It's not, you're not trying to look like a certain thing. You just do that because that's just what you do. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah. And he said, well, I don't know why you're pretending to look like someone else in your cartoons. And uh, I was like, well, I thought that's what you wanted. I thought that's what the New Yorker <laughs> was looking for. He's like, no, we're looking for the opposite of that. We're looking for something that's so unique to you that only you can do it. And that's good advice across the board. I mean, for a comic strip cartoonist, for an animator, for a, an illustrator, you know, gag cartoonist, anything. It's just whatever is unique to you as, a, as an artist, whatever your style, mm-hmm. don't copy every other anime style, every other, you know, line. You, there's only one Ed Steed. There's only one Leona Fink. There's only one Roz Chast, you know. Mm-hmm. Stop, so don't copy them thinking that's what's going you know they they're getting sold because it's something only they can do and it's unique to them um and i didn't really understand it took me a while to really get that when i was a young cartoonist and hearing it from bob really clicked so i started submitting cartoons in my own style and lo and behold i started selling (laughs) so it was good advice and i've heard it a few times before um my style varies according to whoever I'm drawing for. Um, and that's just a hangover from the sort of chameleonic nature of uh, being a freelance cartoonist for 20 years. You just sort of have to change your style for the for the commission. Um, but something, this is another crazy, surreal thing that I know this person at all. Uh, but um, Ed Sorrell, a couple of weeks ago, looked at my, all the work, he looked through all my stuff. And he said, you just have this insane variation of style. He said, I don't know how you decide who you're going to be when you wake up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and it was true. It's like there's all these different styles 
And I think the key to really being good at what you do is 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 finding that one style that when someone sees it, it's just unmistakably you. Like you can tell a Richard Thompson drawing a million miles away. Sure. Um, but you if yeah, if you're trying to kind of mimic yeah, it, it can it can get a little muddy, you know, and and there's nothing wrong with trying to when you're first coming up, sort of trying to um, mimic your favorite artists, but get as much, um, you know, uh, cover as much territory as you can. So, you know, vacuum up everything, vacuum up Sergio Aragonas and Barry Blitt and a wide variation of styles and not just Richard Thompson, you know, <laughs> you, 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 Paul Rigby and, and uh, Mort Drucker and and uh, and Kirby and and Watterson and you know you try and you try and create this um, I guess an amalgam of different styles through what you enjoy from each artist um, rather than trying to copy one specific artist. Yeah, you put it through that that filter of your own sensibility, your own personality, and yeah, uh, you know I think it's important. I deal with younger people all the time in what I do and um, for a living. And so, you know, one of the things that I always felt was really important, you know, there's this idea that originality for in and of itself comes out of the self, you know, and that it's not yeah. a, a result of thousands of hours of, of, you know, digesting influences, but it really is, yeah. you know, it really is. You have to be open to and look at everything and, and channel everything and copy everything when you're younger, you know, do, yeah, do as yeah. you can. That's how you learn. That is how you learn. And it's the best place to learn, you know, copying from other cartoonists is, and, and of course, drawing from life, you know, those are the things, yeah. the key things. Yeah. And, and, uh, but, you know, put it all through that filter and then eventually someday, whatever, you know, in the end you put down on paper is your own. Yeah, and, and and I think speaking about fine artists as we were, even I finished just recently finished um, Da Vinci, the Da Vinci biography by Walter Isaacson, and oh. even he when he started out was copying other artists um, just to learn how to do it, you know. And he was he was an apprentice, and he you know he he had that same thing. He's like, I have to learn everything I can about how to do this by doing it and by copying whoever else is out right now and. You know who who are the big guys right now? Who's working? Yeah, just surrounding yourself in that. I mean, again, it's a lot of it is luck, and and um, you've got to be very, um, you've got to be able to make the most of of the opportunities you get with this stuff. So if you get to meet, you know, uh, a great sort of working cartoonist, and you want to be a cartoonist, that's an amazing opportunity. You should really make the most of that, um, because not everyone has that opportunity. Yeah, it's true. You know, I think there are a couple of things come to mind too while you're saying that. It's you know, and I, th I think about my own life actually, and and the mistakes I've made across my sixty years. And and one of the things that I think of is also being cognizant when those moments arise. You know, of the possibility that that you may not see the possibilities that in that engagement immediately and that yeah. you need to be open to the potentiality for for growth that and for experience that you're not immediately cognizant of you know it's the kind of thing of having the imagination to see that oh working at the newspaper can you know and in any department can give mm -hmm. me information that's going to pay big dividends when i become a cartoonist later on you know yeah you, you don't realize it at the time sometimes yeah, you don't realize it, but it's it's important to to stop and think 
when you have those moments where there's a, a potentiality of of um, of growth and and education, you know, in yeah. an area that you're you're interested in, it's not always, you know, a straight shot. It's uh, it's yeah, more than all. Yeah, it's not definitely, you know. So as a, a, I guess there's so many things to continue to talk about. I mean, you know, we're talking about the New Yorker. Yeah. We've sort of put Ginger Megs aside for a moment, but I guess one of the things I, I touch back on Ginger Megs for a moment is like, you know, this is a hundred year old comic strip. And actually it makes me think of something in regard to the New Yorker cartoons. I was going to ask you too. you're sitting down with cartoon editors and these cartoon editors, comics editors, right. They, they said, well, we've bought, we've done this one already. We've done, I mean, are these people like steeped in the history of New Yorker cartoons so deeply that they know everything the New Yorkers published over 50 years or a hundred years or however, however long the New Yorkers. Been around. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I know there are collections of New Yorker cartoons. Uh, have they, I mean, you know, have they eaten up all of them and then digested all of them and imprinted them on their brains so that they're encyclopedias of New Yorker cartoons? It's funny because I, my biggest paranoia, my biggest paranoia is accidentally doing an idea that has already been done. Sure. And I just, it haunts me, the idea of accidentally lifting a joke that I didn't even know existed. Um, and so that's why it's good to have fact checkers and editors, um, is that they can do that work for you mm -hmm. when you're submitting. And I think when Emma would say, oh, we have, I think we already have something similar on this. Nine times out of ten, it's because she bought something similar recently. Mm -hmm. And you tend to remember the ones that, you know, you okayed rather than the ones that you rejected. But um, uh, there is sort of a sense of thematic repetition. So, like, yes, there are a lot of tropes that, you know, Desert Island cartoons, for instance, in the New Yorker. So there's been a million <laughs> Desert Island cartoons. Yeah. But, you know, the New Yorker, you're right, it's nearly 100 years old. 1925 is when it started. So, you, you know, you've got a nearly 100 years of cartoons. No one can encyclopedically remember every single one of those. Although I think Michael Maslin and Ellis J. Rosen would, would try. They, they're both my go-to guys. So if if I ever have a um, an idea that I'm trying to work on and I think, ah, oh, this has definitely been done, this must have been done, I go to the cartoon bank and like the Condonesque cartoon bank, and I type in the the joke or the idea, and if it doesn't come up or something similar doesn't come up, I'm like, oh, it still must have been done somewhere. So we've got a Google Images, and I can't find it on Google Images. I go, I text Ellis Rosen, who's a great New Yorker cartoonist, and uh, like a real encyclopedic, um, big Gary Larson fan, fantastic uh, memory of Gary Larson cartoons. But um, yeah, I'll ask him, and I'll say, has this been done? Um, and sometimes he'll go, yeah, yeah, I've seen that one before. And then he'll look it up and go, yep, here it is. Um, which is great because it saves me, saves me time. Sure. But, um, but it also assuages my sort of like, you know, I think I'm crazy because this must have been done. Sometimes it hasn't been done, which is, again, it's, 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 a, it's amazing. But yeah, the, the editors are kind of going partly on intuition, partly on experience, like, and then other parts, an actual... Once they um, go into the yes pile, um, I think what happens is, and it gets approved by David Remnick, what happens is I think they have fact checkers that go back through the archives and look for similar cartoons, similar themes, and just double check that they haven't already run it before. 
um, before they come back to you and say and give you the okay that they're going to buy it. Um, yeah, you send your batch on Tuesday at noon and you hear back at 5 p.m. on Friday. And if you didn't hear back at 5 p.m. on Friday, then you didn't sell anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in between that time, between Tuesday and Friday, they do a lot of a lot of work. It's about a thousand cartoons a week. Thousand cartoons a week. That's a yeah. How many did that's they choose crazy. to print? Sixteen. Sixteen. Oh, man, that's yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I mean, in that sense, it can be like the Olympics. Like it can be extremely competitive. But what's strange is the cartoonists aren't compet. Like we all know each other. We're all friends. You know, we like each other. There's no, like, you would think the most competitive thing in the world. We'd all be, like, at each other's throats. We're not. We're all hanging out, you know, going to each other's birthday parties and, and drinking drawers. And, yeah, we're all all buddies. <laughs> is, it, is this um, a group of cartoonists who, who meet at the New Yorker offices on Tuesday and submit their we, work all together in person? Yeah, we used to. We did that right up until March of 2020. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and it just hasn't returned since oh, it just hasn't it hasn't come back so which is really sad because uh that was the best part for me that was the best part of the process because not only did i get actual feedback mm-hmm. tangible feedback that i could use on each cartoon um and you know maybe learn why something didn't get accepted rather than just you know no response at all um but yeah we all went to lunch afterwards we'd all hang out um there's nice. this you know long time famous uh, cartoonist lunch it's mm-hmm. been going on for decades and decades um, at this place called Pergola des Artistes. Uh, mm-hmm. But now that has kind of stopped and it will never kind of pick up again, I don't think. Uh, you know, it should be Sam Gross, George Booth, and Mort Goberg, and Sid Harris, and all those guys. But um, yeah, that that vanished after the pandemic. That's a darn shame, really. When you yeah. see, It's one of those traditions. Uh, and there are lots of stories, right, uh, around about those lunches and uh, meeting at the New Yorker. And so, and of course, you know, New York City, I mean, in, back in the heyday of the magazine, uh, not the New Yorker magazine, I mean, peri- periodicals in general, um, yeah. there were a lot of gag, a lot of magazines that bought gag cartoons. Yeah. But who else buys gag cartoons anymore? Well, airmail, which is Braden Carter's uh, email newsletter thing that goes out every Saturday. Uh, Bob Mankoff is the cartoon editor there now. That's when oh. he moved up, but he went to Esquire. Um, it's, yeah, it's a pretty small market. I mean, Mad dried up as well. I was working for Mad for a, lot, for a bunch of years, and then uh, they pretty much folded. They're just in repeats now. Um, uh, I think the only original thing they do now is the cover. They do do a, you know a new cover for each issue, but everything else inside is repeats. Um, uh, sorry, and the fold in Johnny Sanchez, yeah, the fold yeah. in still is taken over from El Jaffe. Um, but yeah, it's the market isn't that big. Although you know there is Alter Journal in California, which is like their version of the New Yorker. Um, they pay okay. Um, new Yorker pays the best. So everyone used to back in the day. You know, have an arm. They'd come down on the train from Connecticut, <laughs> and then just have an armful of cartoons, roughs, and they would go to the New Yorker, then they'd go to the Saturday Evening Post, and then they'd go to Esquire, and they'd go to Playboy, and they go. They'd just go all around town and going down the list of like how much they pay until yeah. they would just sell whatever's left for like two bucks, um, yeah. and then all meet out for lunch. Very big long lunch. <laughs> I think back then it was on a Wednesday. And mm. they would, yeah, and they'd all go back to their uh, respective homes and, um, you know, do it all again the following week. Yeah, amazing way to live. I mean, really. But <laughs> yeah. that was, 
you know, yeah. you, you were pro- if you went to every office, you were probably going to sell something somewhere. Uh, yeah. And you think about, I, I mean, um, you know, I'm a well a fan of a lot of different cartoons, but Dan DiCarlo comes to mind for a minute because yes. years doing before doing Archie, he spent years doing all of those men's magazine gag cartoons, and there were a yeah. zillion of those around, which were probably pretty paid pretty cheap, but. You know, I think he he was able to sustain a living doing that, and for a while. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just paid. yeah. Playboy paid. Playboy stopped running cartoons in 2017, 2016. Yeah, and that was a big market too. One of the last big markets for for cartoonists, and so it's you know it's it's become increasingly difficult. And I guess this leads into you know a couple of different areas now. Um, you we had hinted at this before, but the changing playing field and how web cartoonists are. Yeah. You know, particularly the very young ones are now aiming their work. They have no idea, no concept of, or they may have a, a concept of of the idea of syndication, but it's really not in on their their roadmap, their career roadmap. You know, they're thinking of different things and and uh, different ways of getting their work out there. Um, as as being the other thing that comes to mind in in regard to that is you know sort of a corollary to that is. Your role as the president of the National Cartoonist Society and and updating and adapting, you know, mm. the society to the new kind of um, playing field that cartoonists find themselves in. I mean, uh, yeah. it's opened its doors. I think the Cartoonist Society has opened its doors to different modes of of um, what's the word making uh, different pathways to a career in cartooning than it had before. Yeah. yeah. So, you know. So what are some of the road paths cartoonists are taking to that you see uh, cartoonists taking to sustain a living, particularly younger ones? Well, that that was one of the first things that I did when I came in as president was try to establish based on my observations and sort of research from other cartoonists um, on why. Why don't we have more young cartoonists? Why don't we have more web webcomic artists, creators who are making a living as a cartoonist online? Um, you know, what, why aren't we? And 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 the truth was that we really didn't have anything to offer them. Um, and and sometimes they didn't even technically qualify to be members, which was insane. Um, so we went uh, went about changing the bylaws to the NCS, which took two years. We did it line by line. These things are written in like 1946. So um, it took a very long time. We did it with a parliamentarian and made sure that it was up to code, wow. um, you know, up to the New York state code. Um, and we then, so instead of just sort of giving the NCS a new lick of paint, we sort of popped the hood and changed the entire engine and, and all the little dark plugs and things. So we, we actually changed it. And then once we had... Um, the new membership tiers in place through rewriting the bylaws we then put them to the membership um, for ratification and once those went through finally we were able to accept cartoonists who didn't have a 20th century business model of being a syndicated newspaper cartoonist or a gag cartoonist who was published in the new yorker or you know a book illustrator or a, you know disney animator like there were people who were doing amazing new things who could finally be accepted into the NCS. And then once they got there, could actually have value. So there are things that we added that we can actually do now um, with new technologies. Um, you know, we have like monthly Zoom get-togethers, tutorials and workshops and screenings, and we have the Rubens being more um, 
uh, open and a much more varied set of um, sort of workshops and, and conference presentations. Um, yeah, and, and I always like I, I always made a point to go to all the European festivals and the American comic arts festivals and comic cons every single year, San Diego and New York and WonderCon and CXC and even the AAEC, uh, American Association of Editorial Cartoonists. Um, I would go to those because I wanted to sort of hear what everyone else was doing and yeah. navigating this terrain to figure out, you know, what, uh, you know, it's 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 very common for a cartoonist to walk up to another guy and go, what are you doing? How are you doing this? What are you using for this? Are you using a Wacom tablet or an iPad Pro? Or are, you, are you on Substack or Patreon? Or are you on Twitter, Instagram? You know, are you using, I don't know, using Webtoon? Like, mm -hmm. it, it, it really has, as you say, the terrain has changed. The playing field is totally different. Um, and it happened quickly, like all at once and also slowly. I mean, it, it definitely changed when people could make their own WordPress site and put a webcomic up. And the days of like Penny Arcade and PVP and, um, you know, Kate Beaton doing Dark of Agrant was like great. I was a big fan of reading that all the time. And I, I used to have bookmarks on my browser where I would just every day just open the same pages. Sure. Um, and check the day, you know, check the day's webcomics every day, like uh, Brandel Monroe, and and I used to love the oatmeal, I still do love the oatmeal, Matt Inman. Um, and talking to these people has been really interesting. Sarah Anderson has been really interesting as well to talk to. She's got some really good insights on this. Uh, and it's that a lot of these cartoonists do talk to each other, and they do what we always had done in the NCS, which is conferenced and talked and networked and hung out and um only they're doing it in different spaces and um uh, they don't feel like they have a you know they don't feel welcome in the ncs because of this sort of old um sort of uh, perception of what the ncs was for a very very long time uh, i'm glad to say it's not that anymore it's, it really has changed quite a lot um and it feels like uh, now where we're at is a real pivot point. Um, we're getting a lot of new members. As soon as we changed our bylaws, a lot of cartoonists who have always wanted to be NCS members applied and were finally approved. Um, and there are cartoonists who maybe only do, um, you know, gag cartoons for the online version of the New Yorker or any, you know, or the weekly humor, humorist or um, airmail or American bystander. But that's a, they're still working and they're, they're doing it and they're making money and they have a store where they're selling prints and they have an Instagram where they might have, I don't know, 100,000 followers. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just a side hustle. It's not just like a hobby. Um, it's a real, it's a job and it's, and it's something they're invested in. Some people, a lot of cartoonists do have to have, uh, you know, part-time jobs or, or um, traditional jobs to, to, you know, pay the bills. Um, but then there are other cartoonists who have really made it work um, just in cartooning, which is really hard. It is really, really difficult because in a heartbeat, an algorithm can change and all of a sudden your contact to your 100,000 Instagram fans is just stopped. You're just shadow banned and you can't reach them at all anymore. And you can't take them with you because you can't take followers from Instagram onto your mailing list or onto TikTok or whatever else is happening now. 
Um, so it's a really difficult thing to navigate. Um, so to that end, we thought if the NCS is more malleable and sort of adaptable to these new technologies and not so rigid in their sort of membership criteria as, as to what the definition of a working cartoonist is, um, then we can actually stand to learn a lot from the new cartoonists who are working and bring them into the NCS and, and uh, sort of network and, and not just help teach um, each other, but like learn, learn from everyone. It's just, it's a constant state right now, especially of, of flux. It's like Twitter is, <laughs> some yeah. cartoonists who were big on Twitter now are just going, well, <laughs> there goes that. And uh, it might, it'll be something else next week. And then there'll be a big Mastodon cartoonist, maybe. And then there'll be, a, <laughs> there'll be something else. And, um, yeah, we're in uncharted territory. And there is no syndicated model. Um, I know that Andrews of Mill syndication and King Features and creators are looking at other interesting ways of, like, licensing cartoon properties into streaming series and books and other mm -hmm. publishing and... Um, you know they're they're adapting too, and they have to. It's for their own survival, and um, yeah, we're we're doing the same thing in the NCS. Yeah, and I think quite successfully. Uh, it, it seems like it seems like um, one of the things that well, fortunately for for myself, I had never been. I never thought it was a possibility for for me because uh, the way I've gone about my career has been sort of uh, just. It's not been a straight line, and it's been a weird, circuitous path. So it was it was possible. It became possible for me. What happened after I got in and and said, "Oh, I'm so happy to be in," because it was kind of a lifelong dream of mine. Yeah. Um, was that I got a lot of emails from people saying, oh, how did you do this? You know, because I really want to join too. And what was interesting is that there was a lot of enthusiasm among people who were reaching out to me saying, you know, I really want to, I really want to do this. How do I go about applying? And oh, that's great. Yeah, it, it it was it was kind of neat to see because other people were, you know, whereas you might think that a lot of younger people may be not so interested. No, there's there's real interest there. And so, uh, you know, I hope to see uh, a lot of new younger members as as uh, we move forward. But yeah, uh, it's well, really kind of so far so good. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I think it's great that that, you know, not only for my personal benefit but i mean in reality if a society like that is going to remain viable right and in the future it has to change with the times uh obviously um, because the cartooning landscape has changed so dramatically in the last 30 years or so and uh, yeah. and and it sounds you know it's it's it really has i mean i i don't know if you listen to comic lab with um brad yeah. geiger and dave Keller. Yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. does right Great. And and they are great. And they, they have lots to say on this. And, and they've been talking about the implosion of Twitter uh, for a couple of weeks now. And uh, that seems to be that's going to throw a lot of things into disarray for people who are who have, you know, a lot of followers there unless yeah. reshuffles and, and reconfigures uh, somehow. Well, I mean, as a bookend to that, I, I would say and I, I really I love uh, listening to those guys riff. They're hilarious. Um, the, the, the thing that I'm, you know, how I, I mentioned that I had this sort of complex about me showing up to the party, just as they're sweeping up the car <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that has kind of followed me because I, you know, 
I got into editorial cartoons just as the newspaper industry was collapsing and, you know, got a syndicated newspaper going strip because that was, you know, going down the tubes. And <laughs> and I was always I was always just arriving as things were like, oh, no, no, wait, can you turn out the lights because we're done. Uh, so I, I really turned my attention to, well, what's what's next? What are the nascent new things that are starting? And I'm, I'm listening to people like um, Dave Kelly, but people like who are really interested in trying new things and mm -hmm. and giving feedback on like what worked and what didn't. Um, that sort of stuff is really important. And young cartoonists who are coming out of places like SCAD and CalArts and yeah. all these like arts colleges, I genuinely hope that they don't become graphic designers because mm -hmm. if they see the terrain and go, oh, that's not a career. I can't make a living as a cartoon. I can't be a cartoonist. Then they're going to just look for the next sort of thing. You go, well, I guess I'll learn to code or I'll be a designer and learn how to use, you know, InDesign and Photoshop. And I do, I worry about that. And I think it's really important for people like that who are graduating and who are just coming into the industry to keep a finger on that pulse and it doesn't have to be Twitter and it doesn't have to be Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or anything. It can just be sort of keeping tabs on who's doing what and who's having success. Like I, I started a Substack and I'm very, very grateful to be having success on that. And that's after having had a mailing list for seven years that I did every week and just porting a lot of those people over to the Substack. Mm -hmm. uh, and then having it's you know it's like a it's like having a Patreon and a Mailchimp and a Medium account all in one, and I barely have to do anything. I just put cartoons up there. Um, yeah, I just, I just called it NewYorkCartoons.com. I just draw cartoons about living in New York, and uh, it's it's just something new that I tried, and it happened to be hitting um, some good notes, which is great. And yeah, it just feels like I mean, anytime you try something, the worst that could happen is that it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I mean that's you know, there's, you, you ought to try things at least, or at least talk to people who are trying things. Um, well, it's the only way. Yeah, it's the only way forward. When, when you're finding the, the, you know, the ground is is crumbling beneath you, you got to step onto a new platform, <laughs> right? You know, yeah, aft somewhere. And uh, yeah. yeah, Substack yeah. is interesting uh, because it's it's kind of an old new model, isn't it? In a way, it is. You know. Yeah. Uh, and there are a number of authors who are uh, finding their way there. Um, I read a couple of different people there, and uh, and so it's kind of interesting to see what's happening. It's in a way, it's like putting together your own your own kind of newspaper uh, in a way. Yeah, it, it's. I never really thought about it that way, but it is. You're finding, and you're also finding your people. You're not trying to play to the to the whole room. You're playing to your section. Yeah. And and that's a really important thing that I've had to really come to understand is from doing newspaper comic strips, you're you're trying to get everyone, you know, everyone who reads a newspaper. And, and at, uh, for the majority of my time doing it, it's 40 to 80 um, and people who subscribe to newspapers. And um, that's a different audience and that's a broad audience, whereas you can really find your niche. You can really find your people, as you were saying, you know, it's all about finding your your niche, finding your audience and playing to them um, uh, and not trying to please everyone, not trying to count to whatever is in trend and whatever the tastemakers are saying you have to do um, because the, the tastemakers will change and then you'll be stuck with this thing that you were doing that was in vogue for five seconds. Um, has, you know, in the, in the past when we, well, I, I guess over the last few years, Ginger Megs must have, must have taken up 
an enormous amount of your energy and your attention. And yeah. I guess now that that its days as a syndicated trip in Australia have kind of come to an end. And you you said you're working on animation or different modes of dissemination. Yeah, very slow process. Yeah. Very slow process. So, yeah. you know, as that is, is that taking up less of your time and opening up the door to more towards these kinds of, um, you know, the more gag oriented cartoons? Uh, is is it is it become less of a preoccupation than it was, or is it still taking up as much time as it did? It, it's certainly not taking up as much time as it did because a daily, a daily comic strip is, I mean, oof, it's yeah. it's it's all it's very pervasive, all consuming, you know. Yeah. Um, and ask any daily comic strip cartoonist, uh, all they're thinking about is the next deadline. They're thinking yeah. about the next strip. Um, not doing the dailies anymore means yes, there is more real estate, mental real estate, and I've definitely turned that towards um trying new things like the substack that's i think the substack has probably been part of what has filled that void um with, with doing the dailies um not that it needed to be filled <laughs> but i i definitely felt like i wanted to to do this and it felt uh, no i didn't feel compelled i just felt like um it just kind of fell out of me i didn't even try mm -hmm. it just it was something I was doing, and it was my wife who said, you know, people would probably like to see this stuff that you're scribbling about, you're writing about. And it's literally just diary entries from seven years of, of living in the Lower East Side and, and doing comedy shows and traveling and stuff that's happened in New York um, that, I, you know, she's like, this is interesting stuff. There are people who have never lived in New York who would find this fascinating. And it took her saying that to, for me to think, oh, maybe I'll put it out there you know um and that's what i did yeah and uh you know there are people who live in new york too who probably just read it for oh yeah you know the self-identification kind of thing you know i i've lived there and i know what it's like you know and this is the kind of thing you encounter there right and so uh you know it's always great to recognize your own experience in a in a comic strip yeah i think those are my favorite comic strips yeah. uh, a lot of them are comics with an x a lot of them are people who are writing about, uh, you know, just what that, their version of life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people who just have this very unique perspective and style, like Tony Millionaire <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Art, Art Spiegelman and people who, um, yeah, just have a voice, you know? Yeah, sure. And, well, you know, that's the whole world of, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of, when you said that, I was thinking of a lot of autobio cartoonists uh you know spiegelman's one of them but um crumb is a great example yeah, sure. of somebody like that but you know um i i'm wondering if in do you have recurring characters in your work or is this the kind in the new stuff or is this stuff you're leaving recurring characters aside you know what i i haven't got them they haven't revealed themselves themselves to me yet mm -hmm. and i feel like they will there are certain repeated people in my life that are characters that are just like really strange people and funny people that I think will just take on a bit of a lack of their own and kind of tell me that, you know, this is them. Um, uh, and, and also I think the readers will, like I, I spoke to a friend of mine, Nick Galifianakis, he was saying that 
you know, you can go into this thing wanting to know exactly what it is and how it's going to turn out and what it's going to look like and how it's going to read. And he said, that's the truth is it's probably going to tell you what it is There's, and your readers, it's going to evolve and it's going to change and characters and commonalities and things that you didn't plan will probably just pop up. And by happenstance, you'll just build this world um, just by virtue of, yeah, of writing uh, what you know. And it'll it'll tell you what it is. And yeah, the process will will, will organically reveal uh, yeah. those those things, those those characteristics that become innate to uh, to whatever it is you're creating. So uh, that's yeah. great. Well, Jason, it's been a really great conversation. This has been a lot of fun. Um, yes, yeah, thank you. This has been really fun. Yeah, it's been great, and there's been so much to so much really to talk about. And and as I go back and probably listen through this to to do a little editing here and there i'll probably come across all kinds of questions that i would have uh, <laughs> be chastising myself for not asking because I, I as we were talking there were things that were going through my mind that i wanted to ask about and, and they then they left me as soon as they arose so uh i know i'm gonna gonna want to talk to you again sometime because um there's lots to talk about here and uh, well i would love to I, I, it's yeah. been really fun chatting yeah, it's been great, man. It's been great. And uh, I hope we get to do it again sometime. Yeah, thanks, sir. Yeah, all right. Um, so I think I will stop the recording button. Right. And, um, well, that was a really, really nice conversation with Jason. It was great to talk to Jason Chadfield, the uh, president of the National Cartoonist Society and a great cartoonist in his own right. Check out his work on Go Comics, uh, Ginger Megs on Go Comics, or uh, subscribe to The New Yorker and uh, check out his work there or on his website, which I believe is jasonchatfield.com. I'm just kind of taking a guess. Um, but I'll put a link to Jason's ch uh, website in the notes for the show uh, today. So be sure to look for those and f and follow your nose <laughs> to jasonchatfield.com. Uh, he's such a versatile and great cartoonist and uh, really a brave comedian. <laughs> Man, that's, again, I take my hat off to anybody who stands up. Comedy is hard. <laughs> What's that phrase? Dying is easy, cartooning is hard. No, no. I said, what? what I just talk about a Freudian slip. Dying, no, the phrase is dying is easy, comedy is hard. Well, comedy, cartooning, it's all the same bailiwick, right? Yeah, but no, not really. There can't be anything scarier than standing up on a stage by yourself and telling jokes. Uh, you know, I stand in front of an audience, if you call it an audience, but they're, they're, uh, uh, required to be there when I have to do lectures for for uh, school. Literally the definition of a, of a captive audience. I have been doing those for a zillion years now. So, uh, and, and it can be a performance. There's no doubt about it. Teaching can be a performance. But I think standing up and doing stand-up comedy in front of an audience is a whole nother level. <laughs> Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's not like students are gonna heckle me, you know, uh, right in the middle of class. They might, they might heckle me after class, but uh, and the reviews may be not so good. But um, yeah, it doesn't usually happen in the middle of class. Although they, they, there are a lot of times when you'll reach out for audience participation, and there you'll just hear crickets, <laughs> crickets in the audience. Alas. 
Well, I've been remiss this year, uh, this past year, trying to get shows up on the air, but this is a one-man operation, and I'm sure you can understand sometimes it's a little hard. A lot of stuff like life gets in the way of things that uh, we often want to do for pleasure, and this is definitely one of those things that I do for pleasure. Yours and mine, I hope. Uh, Yours as well as mine. And I hope in 2023, I get a chance to do uh, a, a few more. <laughs> try to try to get back to a regular schedule of some kind. It, it, uh, it, it's a wonderful opportunity, really, to grow and keep my mind active as I ossify into my 60s. <laughs> you know, my brain starts to, if it starts to, you know, dry up and congeal and uh, this kind of keeps me awake and alive. <laughs> this opportunity, so I'm going to keep doing it as long as as long as I can. Uh, anyway, uh, that that being said, I hope you enjoy what we do here on Blockhead between my guests and myself. And uh, and and you know, thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for listening. And thanks to those of you who checked out my tribute to Charles Schultz on the occasion of his 100th birthday on YouTube. Uh, at my channel, Jeff Grogan's Blockhead. Good Grief by Schultz is my little animated tribute to Charles Schultz and to Peanuts and to its influence and impact on my life. And I hope that you've had a chance to look for it. If you haven't, you can find it there. There will be a link in the show notes today uh, for you. I'm so pleased that so many people have gone to see it, and I've had such a nice reaction to it, and, and uh, which is just so gratifying. And I think it just goes to show how, how much we all love what Charles Schultz has brought to the world. And uh, it's been so meaningful to me in my life. And it was a joy to make that, to put that little piece together. And, uh, and it's, it's even better to share it with you. Uh, I have a new Kickstarter coming in February, February 2023, for the complete Plastic Baby Heads from Outer Space. Yes, the infamous Plastic Baby Heads from Outer Space, a strip that ran on Go Comics for like four years and was almost booted off in the very first day, which is, uh, I suppose, something to be proud of. <laughs> uh, it is 370 pages of full-color comics, and it is indeed, as weird as it sounds, Plastic Baby Heads from Outer Space. It's, uh, it, it is, uh, it's ridiculous. It, let's just say that. It's a ridiculous, monumentally ridiculous comic strip and if you you know if you like uh ridiculous things like you know bullwinkle and rocky or uh whatever rick and morty or or whatever um it's in in line with those uh those things and it was kind of like a fish out of water on go comics but nevertheless uh there it was and uh, it's now after all this time it's been sitting on the shelf for a long time i finally got the time to put it together in book form and now i've got a big big chunk of stuff that is really almost like a big graphic novel uh, because it is a narrative as well as being, you know, uh, incremental strips. But uh, I'm really excited about it. I've I've been reading it, uh, you know, doing the editorial thing and enjoying it, actually, even though I wrote it and drew it. And uh, if you can believe that. And uh, I think you're going to like it, too. So it's coming in February and uh, February 2023. Hardcover paperback editions, both available via Kickstarter 
in the new next month in the next month so it's coming up quick and i will give you all that information uh and you can get previews uh on instagram my instagram account at green screen comics so go there all the news about this will be there as well as here and uh you can you can read some of the strips uh, they'll be posted all through january and into february just prior to the kickstarter so look for that okay it's fun weird crazy ridiculous thing and maybe that's the right thing for 2023 it's a 10 year anniversary for the strip it debuted in 2013 that's how long ago uh how long i've let it sit on the shelf but now it's it's time has finally come and here it is so 2023 the year of plastic baby heads from outer space wherever you are i hope you had a great holiday and the new year has begun on the right foot for you or the left foot depending on what your preference and uh and it's great to be back here on blockhead with you with our guests with everyone in the whole wide world and uh what do i have to say except for i'm i'm very appreciative happy uh, to be here i hope you are too and uh all the best to you in 2023 and as always thanks for listening Thank you.